Hello, and welcome to a Baha'i Conversation. My name is Anthony Naimi. And I'm Michael Sabat. We started a Baha'i Conversation as a way to enrich our own understanding of the Baha'i writings, to share some of the insights from those writings, and hopefully to spark further Baha'i Conversations. In each episode, we look at a particular dimension of the teachings of the Baha'i Faith, explore how it relates to ideas and society at large, and discuss how it might serve the needs of humanity today. In this episode, Anthony will be sharing some thoughts on the connection between morality and spirituality from a Baha'i perspective. As always, this will be followed by a discussion. Enjoy! Hello, everyone. In this episode of the podcast, we're talking about morality and the basis of morality. So we all know that we should be good, but not all of us know why. We know that we should be kind to our neighbors, that we should respect each other, that we shouldn't lie, cheat, or steal. But when we want to give an account for how we should be good, or what kinds of goods we should prioritize, or maybe when we face moral ambiguities or gray zones, or maybe even when we just hunger for a reason to be good, that's where many of us run up against some problems. So in this episode, we're looking to explore the foundation or the basis of morality from a Baha'i perspective. We're going to use the Baha'i writings to ask some questions about the foundation of good deeds, and we're going to hone in on the question, do we need spirituality for truly moral behavior? If so, why? What happens when you take the spirituality or the spiritual way of looking at the world away from our morality? Or said another way, what reasons do we have to be moral if we think of our efforts to be good in a materialistic way? Before we really start, we might ask, why should we care about the basis of morality? Why shouldn't we just be moral? So for me, this issue really hits close to heart. Firstly, because I always wondered about why I should be good. I was always divided within myself. On the one hand, a part of me yearned for a great moral good without really knowing why. Um, But then another part of me really needed the reason and wanted that inward alignment of my mind and my heart. And beyond this, I think if we let go completely of thinking about the basis or the reasons, the underlying reasons of why we should be moral, we lose the ability to discern and discriminate morality in our practical day-to-day lives. So our moral perceptions are situational. They change without us realizing that they're changing. Certain things, whether in our lives as individuals or collective Uh, they change. They might come to seem as right or moral, not because of any underlying reason, but simply on account of changing fads and fashions. This is what David Brooks has argued in um, the New York Times. He's written about our change in moral vocabulary in the past half century, and that there's been a change in the moral language that Western countries use, a rise in individualistic words, words like personalized self, unique, and phrases like I can do it myself, and a decline in communal words, words like community, band together, common good, unity, and share. He cites research from social psychologists that notes a decline also in virtue words, words like decency, conscience, patience, compassion, humility, bravery, and fortitude. So his argument is that based on the data that he um, has collected, he that's that we use these words left less often. And while we and we don't really fully know the implications of why or what that means, it's interesting to think of this in a light, in light of what Abdul Baha says, uh, that in a time to come, morals will degenerate to an extreme degree. And so possibly one of the vectors or channels of this moral that degeneration is the very concepts and language that we use, which shapes our thoughts and behaviors imperceptively. So thinking about the moral basis of our, uh, of our words um, and the way that we think about morality is a, it's an interesting and important uh, channel by which to become conscious of moral changes and to be able to judge what we think about those moral changes. So we're talking about the relationship between spirituality, the spiritual worldview, and morality. And so firstly, we have to think a little bit about what do we mean by morality and what do we mean by spirituality? So by morality, we're talking about the thing that deals with an understanding of a proper relationship between humans and 
between ourselves and the world. So between humans and the world and between humans and, uh, and between each other. So in that context, almost anything can be seen as a moral issue. So for example, if I make a purchase on Amazon, that's an action that I take. And to question the morality of that action means to question whether it's good or bad to do that. Does it ultimately do good or do harm to buy something off of Amazon? So sometimes morality is embodied in codes, rules, laws, or standards. But at the heart of the question about what morality is, is really asking what are the right attitudes, the right intentions or behaviors that lead to my well-being and the well-being of others. Morality then deals with our attempts to describe, understand, and prescribe certain kinds of attitudes intentions and behaviors that are good for us and which lead to our happiness, our honor and our prosperity. One can infer that this is a question of some importance for what, from what Baha'u'llah says. He says, the first heraus and the first effulgence which hath dawned from the horizon of the mother book is that man should know his own self and recognize that which leadeth unto loftiness or lowliness, glory or abasement, wealth or poverty. So thinking about spirituality, we generally mean that in our thoughts, intentions, feelings, and actions, we live in relation to something higher than ourselves, and that we're conscious and aware that we live in relation to something higher than ourselves. So of course, this is a general way of looking at spirituality, but I think it will be good enough for us to get thinking on the issue. So for Abdu'l-Bahá, it's really impossible to be moral in the truest sense of the word without reference to spirituality. Since we are spiritual beings, it's impossible for us to be truly well without reference to our spiritual growth. So he says, man is, in reality, a spiritual being, and only when he lives in the spirit is he truly happy. So since the point of morality is human honor, happiness, and prosperity, and since we can't only be truly happy and prosperous when we live in the spirit, then moral teachings must be able to support us in living in the spirit. Moral teachings are then intended to support us in cultivating and strengthening our relationship to our own spirituality and to support our spiritual growth. And since it's only when humans live in the spirit that they're truly happy, our, that's what our morality has to support us to do. So the purpose of morality is to support us to become susceptible and sensitive to the influences of the spirit, to live in accordance with the laws of spiritual cause and effect, to cultivate our consciousness of those laws, to help us properly manage our animal natures, help us not fall a prey to our egos, help us foster detachment from the material world, trust, renunciation, hope, and a heartfelt fear of God. So in order to really properly evaluate whether our thoughts, feelings, intentions, and behaviors are moral or not, we need to be able to understand the premise of morality, which it's to help us be spiritual. I mean, this is from a Baha'i perspective, right? So I think that's what Abdu'l-Baha is saying when he talks about good deeds, which are done without the knowledge of God. He says that know that such ways, words, and deeds are to be lauded and approved and they redound to the glory of the human world. But these actions alone are not sufficient. They are a body of the greatest beauty, but without a spirit. No, that which leads to everlasting life, eternal honor, universal enlightenment, and true success and salvation is, first and foremost, the knowledge of God. In another place, he says, good actions alone, without the knowledge of God, cannot be the cause of eternal salvation, everlasting success and prosperity and entrance into the kingdom of God. So we can think of a couple of reasons why this consciousness, this knowledge of God, this awareness of the spiritual context within which we live. So it might be important. So firstly, it helps us properly evaluate whether our actions are actually moral or not. So we often take our moral assumptions for granted and giving a spiritual context helps us become aware of, of the logic behind morality so that when we question our morality, we have a framework for it. 
But secondly, it also helps us become aware of certain ramifications of our thoughts, feelings, actions, and intentions, which we might otherwise not be aware of if we didn't understand the spiritual context. So if our good deeds and moral behavior is, are not intended to only have an external outcome, but rather if our good actions are also important prerequisites to us entering the kingdom of God, if they are intended to cultivate our own awareness of our spirituality and support us in living in relationship to the spirit, then that expands the meaning of morality. And it opens up new horizons on which we can understand the importance of our thoughts, words, feelings, intentions, and actions. So suddenly, inward alignment, private character, and internal purity become as important as external, the external things that we do. So true spirituality and orientation to the divine establishes that context within which it's our responsibility to understand spiritual ramifications and resonances of, of, our, of our deeds. So without spirituality, then the meaning of our deeds becomes limited. We may not see the relevance of certain types of deeds. We may even persist in certain types of deeds that we interpret as good because we're not evaluating them according to that inward standard, but only according to their outward practical standard. So as an example, like if you take the act of forgiving people who trespass against you or who disappoint you or who even abuse you. So without spirituality, if you have no practical reason to forgive somebody, you may never do so. But with spirituality, my reason is primarily inward. I understand that I need to clear that spiritual energy because holding on to anger or resentment will block my heart, will block my mind, and will block me from being open to the promptings of the spirit, and that can stunt my spiritual growth. So all of this is really to explore the foundation and basis of morality in the Baha'i writings as the knowledge of God. This consciousness and awareness of the knowledge of God, which is the origin and end of all things, it's the source of spiritual life, is both the premise and the purpose, so to speak, of morality and good action. Abdu'l-Baha goes on to say that it is clear that this knowledge, i.e. the knowledge of God, takes precedence over every other knowledge and constitutes the greatest virtue of the human world. For the understanding of the reality of things confers a material advantage in the realm of being and brings about the progress of outward civilization. But the knowledge of God is the cause of spiritual progress and attraction, true vision and insight, the exaltation of humanity, the appearance of divine civilization, the rectification of morals and the illumination of the conscience. This doesn't imply that good actions don't exist when we aren't conscious of God, because Abdu'l-Baha says that they do and they can. But the issue is that good actions lose their context, they lose their life, they lose their vivifying principle. And they don't come to fruition in the same way because we aren't aware of the role that they play within that greater context or arguably within their real context. So it's interesting and important to think about this point in our own lives. Like when we do good things, we have to really reflect on why we do those good things. Our morality should have at its root the widest, the strongest, and the most universal foundation possible. So when we do good things primarily for the sake of having a positive outcome on external circumstances, we're much more likely to become fixed and bitter when we can't detect those positive outcomes. But if we believe that good actions are inherently beneficial because they serve to train us, they help us to become more susceptible to inner spiritual influences, or that they can become instruments of a wider good that we may never become conscious of, their purpose is fulfilled regardless of the external impacts and outcomes that we don't see or maybe not able to detect. I think this is what Baha'u'llah is talking about when he says, make not your deeds as snares wherewith to entrap the object of your aspiration and deprive not yourselves of this ultimate objective for which have ever yearned all such as have drawn nigh unto God. If we are attached to our own understanding of morality, however unconsciously, it limits the standard of morality to what we can understand. 
if we think that our human standards, maybe cultural, social, traditional standards, or whether I think my own intelligence is the source and basis for my morality, then it's inevitable that we limit the meaning of morality to what we can understand. And this will put our moral behavior on a weaker foundation. Baha'u'llah says, know thou of a certainty that the will of God is not limited to the standards of the people and God doth not tread in their ways. So another thing we really have to think about um, is we have to investigate what does, what does morality look like when you take spirituality out of the picture, right? What happens to morality when we are materialists? So we can think of both our ability to judge what is moral and isn't moral, and also our ability to act on the basis of what we know as kind of two separate questions. So some of the questions we're going to be thinking about here are, if I, if, if we think that human, of humans in a materialistic rather than a divine way, what is morality based on? Why is, and why is materialism an insufficient basis for morality? What are some of the practical consequences of taking an insufficient foundation for morality? Like what would that change? So what happens when you take spirituality out of morality? Because it's a commonly held assumption that um, people can be moral and good without any spiritual or religious reason to be. So the idea is that human beings don't need to align themselves with anything higher than themselves in order to be good, that they can discover good for their own selves by themselves. So to elaborate on this a little bit, the, the secular or materialist belief is that the power that can discover the truth of right and wrong is a human power. It's our power. We don't need to derive inspiration or guidance from any external source in order to be and to do right. Another way of saying it is that when our hearts and minds are turned towards external or material things, we have the capacity to develop for ourselves norms and principles that will secure our own prosperity. So if we search long enough and hard enough with enough logic and rigor or with enough emotional intelligence, we can discover the foundation for our own good. We can discover the truth of who we really are. We can ensure our own continual development. So, and whether this has to do with making ourselves well, happy and prosperous as individuals, or whether it has to do with creating good relationships, communities, societies, or ultimately lasting harmonious civilizations. So I guess from this perspective, this kind of materialist perspective, there might be a few sources that you could think of as the basis for morality. So firstly, you could think about human intentions, emotions and intuitions. So the idea being here that if you work on your intentions enough, or if you ensure your, uh, you can ensure your own happiness, or if you try to train your emotions enough, or if you try to expand the range of your compassion and empathy, that that is the foundation for good behavior. And just doing more of that is going to lead to ultimately uh, like the truest standard for morality. Another way of thinking about it is that like, no, it's human reason, human thinking. So our understanding of the instrumental effects that our actions produce. So our power of investigation to detect the consequences of our actions, like that's really the foundation of morality. So the idea being there is that if we rationally inquire into the instrumental impacts of our actions, that that can ensure our happiness, that that's the thing we really need to invest in. Or sometimes even you um, to look at our, the behavioral dispositions that come from our kind of DNA, so our genes, the idea there that if we investigate our genes uh, and those genes that predispose our species to certain forms of good and bad, and that like, so to be moral, what we need to do is find ways to leverage our genes and that that's the thing that we need to invest in. So in my understanding, none of these approaches by themselves is enough to ensure ultimately a strong foundation for our happiness, our well, and our well-being, either collectively or individually. Abdu'l-Baha addresses this question when he says, there are some who imagine that an innate sense of human dignity will prevent man from committing evil actions and ensure his spiritual and material perfection. That is, that an individual who is characterized with natural intelligence, 
high resolve and a driving zeal will, without any consideration for the severe punishments consequent on evil acts, or for the great rewards of righteousness, instinctively refrain from inflicting harm on his fellow men, and will hunger and thirst to do good. And yet if we ponder the lessons of history, it will become evident that this very sense of honor and dignity is itself one of the bounties deriving from the instructions of the prophets of God. So according to Abdu'l-Baha, an innate sense of human dignity that characterizes our, th our thoughts, our hearts, our wills is not a sufficient basis for ultimately good action for moral behavior. That sense of human dignity by which people hunger to do good is itself the product of divine education. And without divine education, it will disappear. So for Abdu'l-Baha, true religion is the foundation of morality because it alone cultivates an awareness in human beings of the ultimate and real meaning of their thoughts, feelings, intentions, and actions. It alone provides that connection to the ultimate context. So we have to think a little bit more, like why is, the, why is human power, whether in human emotions, intentions, or the mind, not a sufficient basis for our morality? So one common way of thinking about the basis of human morality is that human beings can basically think their way to morality. By reasoning about cause and effects, our actions will help us achieve the highest good. And so in my understanding of the Baha'i writings, although the human mind is respected as a preeminent power, and of course we need to use the human mind in order to achieve, uh, you know, in order to do good, nonetheless, it's not a sufficient foundation. Um, it is acknowledged that rational investigation of cause and effect of our actions is not a sufficient basis for the kind of morality we need to meet the challenges of the world today. So this is for a couple of reasons, at least. So firstly, rational investigation of the moral consequences of our actions. This requires a context or a framework in which we can adequately evaluate the meaning of our actions. And evaluating the meaning of our actions is different from evaluating the consequences of our actions. For example, it may be that my actions cause someone else pain, but I can't just look at the empirical fact of that person's pain. I can't just look at it quantitatively. I also need to be able to look at the meaning of that person's pain qualitatively. And there's no way to make this judgment without making a leap outside of the empirical. So I have to make certain assumptions about ultimate concerns and human rationality is by itself not up to that task. The second issue with so-called like rationalist approaches to human morality is that even if humans were able to adequately judge right and wrong, the ability to judge is not strong enough to create motivation in people to actually do good, which they understand is good. So rational understanding of right and wrong by itself doesn't tap into the roots of our inner motivation. And because our ego and self-love is so strong, we need a strong inward motivation to cultivate the strength within us to continually walk the moral path, which is the path of renunciation, detachment, self-effacement, and sacrificing our own good for the good of others. Abdu'l-Baha says that it's impossible for a human being to turn aside from his own selfish advantages and sacrifice his own good for the good of the community, except through true religious faith. For self-love is needed into the very clay of man, and it is not possible that without any hope of substantial reward, he should neglect his own present material good. Within the context of, of laws, he also says, the law prevents only the manifest crime and not the concealed crime, whereas the ideal safeguard, namely the religion of God, prevents both the manifest crime and the concealed crime, trains man, educates morals, compels the adoption of virtues, and is the all-inclusive power which guarantees the felicity of the world of mankind. So furthermore, like our human thinking isn't, strong, isn't a strong enough foundation to guide, channel, and transform the masses of humankind. So I guess the question is like, what's the 
What's the moral imperative here? So not only is it not strong enough to guide our own behavior, but it's also what's needed is to transform the masses of humanity. And so the idea is our own ability to think our way into morality. So the, you know, to, to investigate, to inquire, to debate, to converse our way to morality isn't powerful enough to meet the pressing needs of the world today. So Abdu'l-Bahá repeatedly tells us that an all-encompassing power, meaning the essence of the religion of God, is needed for this universal transformation of the human race. He says, philosophy and science will not suffice to elevate and civilize a people. Philosophy of necessity is restricted to a small school and cannot have an essentially moral influence. So what true religion does is that it provides a wider framework within which, that gives us a context within which we can evaluate the meaning of our actions. And this framework supports individuals and collectives alike to cultivate the inner strength and motivation that's required to take on the burden of walking the moral path. Shogi Effendi says, religion, as in the past, is still the world's sole hope, but not that form of religion which our ecclesiastical leaders strive vainly to preach. Divorced from true religion, morals lose their effectiveness and cease to guide and control man's individual and social life. But when true religion is combined with true ethics, then moral progress becomes a possibility and not a mere ideal. Abdu'l-Bahá says in Paris Talks, as religion inculcates morality, it is therefore the truest philosophy, and on it is built the only lasting civilization. Thank you very much, Anthony. That was a wonderful exploration of, a, I think, a really fascinating and a challenging topic. I think one that really touches on so many, so many things. I had a lot of questions that came to mind as I was listening. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll we'll we'll launch in and, and see where they go. So one thing that I was wondering, um, you stressed the idea that from a spiritual perspective, uh, spirituality helps us conceive of our moral actions in a way that goes beyond just looking at their external consequences. Mm-hmm. Do you see this as being at all in tension with another principle in the Baha'i faith that uh, tells us that we have to be, um, you know, very much concerned with the needs of the age that we live in and that we're really trying to advance civilization, which requires us, I think, to be quite attentive to the consequences of our actions to see on a practical level what works, what makes things better and and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. Um, so I think it's important to be attuned to the consequences of your actions. Uh, so I, I don't feel that um, we can judge. So taking consequences outside or, or completely putting them to the side is, is helpful. I think we need to be attuned to the consequences of our actions. But I think the, the core issue, which I was in my understanding is that by themselves, so by ourselves, we don't have necessarily the awareness. We don't have the breadth of vision to be able to adequately uh, evaluate the, the diffusion of our actions. And, and so I think sometimes what happens is that when we, uh, w- when we fall into the trap of using exclusively what we can see, right? So, and what's easiest to judge, which is an external impact of our action, then I think that that's a trap. And, and so that itself could, uh, could like a negative, have a negative feedback loop on the, on the desire to do good, right? So I think it, our, our principle needs to be crystal clear, regardless to some extent of the outcome of that action. And so even sometimes we think we're doing good actions and we, but it may be approximate rather than a distal evaluation. Like we may have, sometimes our, our, our vision is too narrow to fully evaluate. And so I, I think to some extent, um, relying on the guidance uh, from scriptures and relying on 
a, a, an, a wider uh, um, context in which that principle, in which a principle, in which that principle uh, sits is, is helpful. Does that make sense, Michael? What do you think? I, I think so. I think, um, yeah, I, I guess the, you know, the, the focus on Maybe it sets up a false dichotomy to, to say mm -hmm. either we're concerned with external outcomes or we're just concerned with whether we've um, yeah. adhered to sort of our own moral uh, code regardless of the outcome. Because, yeah, in, in as you say, in many situations, you just can't really ever hope to look at the full ramifications of your actions. So Yeah, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Yeah. Like yeah. that's a gift that you have, your ability uh -huh. to anal to analyze things and mm -hmm. the scientific impulse to kind of like want to figure out the cause and effect of things. And I don't think that that's unspiritual to do that. But I think falling into the habit of relying exclusively on what you can see and can't see, uh, I think that that is, um, it's insufficient. It's not enough. We need to use our, our faculties and our ability to kind of almost empirically determine what was good and what was bad, we have to couple that with our understanding of the guidance of the revelation of what has worked for tradition, our traditions. Like we need a number of different uh, points on which to converge them, right? Right, so, so that kind of brings to mind um, what you were sharing about the idea that a spiritual perspective provides something of a framework for thinking about morality. Mm -hmm. Like it's a, it's the idea of living in relation to something higher than yourself that gives a broader mm -hmm. context to your actions. That made me think for the religious person, it would be pretty clear that the highest framework you could adopt would be, you know, roughly speaking, what does God want me to do? Mm -hmm. But there are other things that we've held across history to be higher than ourselves. So what do you think about the idea that the higher thing that motivates us could be uh, something like patriotism. Patriotism could inspire its own kind of morality, I suppose, or, and even you can see how it makes people selfless in certain contexts. Of course, is, yeah. Are there limitations to, to that? Or, or could it also, could something like a patriotic allegiance also serve as a, that broader context that we need for our morality? I mean, I think all morality is relative to what we are able to understand and so there is no i don't think we're capable of the absolute good right and so i think um my understanding i i, I think of that passage in tablets of the divine plan that abdul baha says that there are many types there are many centers of coordination many things that bind people together right but the 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 most perfect expression of the thing that binds us together is is god because it's the highest, it's by definition, the highest thing that any one of us can reach. And so I think if patriotism binds you together, I mean, that's a relative good. The problem is it's not an adequate good for the needs, the moral challenges of our time. So in that sense, in a relative sense, it is immoral to put as your, as your ultimate context of good, a, a patriotic good because it's, it's way too limited, or uh, the good of your own family, or the good of the people around you. So I, I, think, I think in that sense, our consideration of morality is, is relative, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, the, I guess, I guess that, that connects maybe to the, the problem that lesser allegiances tend to define themselves in opposition to something else, that is it meaningful mm -hmm. to say I am patriotic uh, if yours is the only country? Um, or is there implicit in that something saying I, I, I'm patriotic and there's a way that that patriotism could be translated into you know, opposition to, to other countries? Not that it always is or has to be, but there is, I suppose, that, that risk. Um, um, but I guess then on the other hand, it makes me think, spiritual, if we think about um, a spiritually informed morality, there have been cultures and places in time that have been much more overtly religious than ours. Mm -hmm. I don't know, though, can, can we say that they were more moral societies? I mean, it's, in some ways, it, it seems 
as though, for instance, medieval Europe, which had something of mm-hmm. at least the appearance of a religious consensus, um, there were practices in it that we would say were very immoral and that we've we've moved beyond mm-hmm. in a secular Absolutely. age. So, I mean... I find it difficult to judge, right? I mean, it's a very hard question. Uh, I won't pretend to fully know, but I think uh, we always fall into this trap of trying to evaluate the goodness of other times and other places, but goodness is according to what the tools and resources. So goodness is relative, right? So whether, and and so then we, we'd like to think of ourselves as, okay, so here we've reached in some senses along some definitions, we've reached kind of an apex in our goodness. And simultaneously that converges with uh, an apex in our irreligiosity as a people, right? I think, you know, um, what was that quote from, from Abdu'l-Bahá where he talks about, um, so he says that, that that sense of innate human dignity is itself the byproduct of divine education. Mm. So I think that in that sense, that there are many fundamental assumptions that we take in our, uh, in our, so to speak, secular age, which are, you know, it's just a, it's a little bit of a brushing off of the religious uh, denotations of our, Mm. of our ideas, but the connotations are all there. I mean, I mean, so in that sense, I think, the fruition of our secular uh, way of and our materialistic way of thinking of the world is not yet here, right? Mm-hmm. Ideas take time to germinate, and and so I mean, if you if you look at the history of the past, you know, hundreds of years, you see how much uh, thinking there was among at least in this civilization among Western peoples, thinking and grappling different ways to think about. The, their their own religious ideas and thinking different ways of thinking about the Bible and and so there's such a spectrum in terms of like wh- what a religion looks like and so I think the same is true of our of our um, secular non-religious ideas so many of those are taken from a religious context but it takes generations of thinking through an idea finding implications and and so it takes time for ideas to come to fruition. And so that innate sense of human dignity that is the byproduct of a divine education. So what I say in the in the podcast is that without divine education, that sense of human dignity, according to what I understand from Abdu'l-Bahá, will be undermined, right? Hmm. Um, That's interesting. I, when you were talking about how it's 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 very challenging to actually assess, you know, how a society is doing morally. Because yeah. we have a hard time taking into account, like what resources do they did they actually have available? Um, something I guess that came to mind that I've, I've sometimes thought about is, I suppose from a certain perspective, it's remarkable that society existed at all in the pre-modern world. Where, like you think about today, if I want to do something flagrantly immoral, like mm-hmm. uh, murdering, for instance, mm-hmm. my chances of getting away with it are pretty slim, um, mm-hmm. because we have forensic science, we have an organized standing police force uh, and, you know, laws that have been crafted over time to mm-hmm. prosecute people who commit crimes like that and to make sure they can't, can't escape. Six, 700 years ago, I mean, if I wanted to kill somebody, I would just kill them and move to the next village and nobody would ever think to look for me there because like, it's just, there was no standing police force. And I, th- I think, that's, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Abdu'l-Bahá even says that about, you know, that the external law is not mm. sufficient. You need an internal law, right? right. Uh, and so as to capture the inner motivation of people to do and be good, right? Mm-hmm. So, and in connection with that, the fear of God and the love of God and the knowledge of God as the yeah. basis for that inner inner motivation to move beyond yourself and do good. I think what you say is a, is a great example of that, that, you know, there are certain times and places in which that inner law is crystal clear. And, you know, um, I think a lot of it though is, is unconscious. And so we have, we have difficulty really looking at and evaluating what we've internalized, what we've appropriated. And, 
Yeah, so I think it's hard to judge. I find it a super hard topic to really know, like, am I, you know, even when I talk about myself, sometimes I talk so much about religious ideas, but how secular am I, right? And how religious am I? I don't know, really, ultimately. I often wonder at that, like, maybe I'm not as, maybe I'm not that religious as a person. Like, like I certainly seem like it in terms of the conscious parts of how I think and how I, but sometimes I, I look at myself and I think, you're not that religious. Interesting. Do you think that connects at all to the point you were making uh, early in the presentation about language? That um, so you mentioned uh, David Brooks arguing yeah. that our language around morality has shifted. Yeah. To the extent that we're conditioned by the language that you know in the spaces that we grow up in, um, does that limit our our moral imagination? Even if we sort of on a formal level commit to, let's say, a particular religious tradition. I think so. I think absolutely. Like, you know, I mean, if you want to evaluate a worldview, right, we're talking about a worldview in which people have a sense that they are in a relationship with the ultimate, right? Mm. So if you want to talk about evaluating a worldview, it's very difficult to evaluate that. It's a, it's a, like a, a worldview is, It's like, how should I say? There is this image that came to mind. You know, there's a number of just like symbols and, sorry, my, my point is not making sense, but I think it's, it's really difficult to, um, to evaluate a worldview. And I think we're sensitive to language in ways that we could not possibly fathom nor evaluate. So we we free associate so much and so much of our thinking is through unconscious associations of things. So much of our thinking is not through conscious kind of linear cause and effect thinking. And so we appropriate, internalize, and then it, those things become invisible to us. And so, Absolutely. Like, and especially now in this age of kind of like where media is everywhere, it's coming at us from all angles. It, I think it has such an impact on who we think we are and what our motivations for things are. And, and so I, of course, um, yeah, our language has a huge impact hmm. on who we think we are and why we think we should do good for sure, in ways that I don't think we can really evaluate that easily. Interesting. Uh, to the extent that this is even more of an issue in, in the modern age, as you say, with the media climate we live in, and I guess just the greater volume of talk and, and writing that surrounds us at all times, I wonder if there's any connection there with the fact that in the Baha'i revelation, which begins in the modern era and sort of the the 1800s, mm -hmm. uh, one of Baha'u'llah's laws is that Baha'is are supposed to read his writings mm -hmm. every morning and evening. Mm -hmm. doesn't need to be a huge amount, but, but I wonder if part of that is to sort of create an anchoring effect that no matter what the effect of all the language out there is on, on the way we think about the world, at Absolutely. least twice a day, we're brought back to a language that, you know, in, in the Baha'i view, at least is, is revealed, is, uh, sort of a, a higher order of, of language that then has at least a chance to <laughs> shape our thinking or counterbalance some of the other uses of language that we, we run into. Absolutely. Yeah. That context for um, like, it, it's interesting when we talk about our, you know, our motivations, our experiences. So often we have a, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm I often, I'm in circles with a lot of psychologists and a lot of psychologically inclined people. And I think in general, our, 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 our generation and the generation below us are much more psychologically inclined and they use the language of psychology. They're much more apt at describing their experiences, their motivations, their feelings, their thoughts. And I, I often notice that uh, the language of psychology comes to override the language of, of religion. And so if you wanna talk about an experience as, uh, if you, if you, an experience of, for example, like 
uh, feeling the divine or God told me this. So sometimes you listen to people who are actually part of like, like these religious communities, especially in the South of the United States, they speak in that language. They said, mm-hmm. God told me to do this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like very jarring for us secular people that <laughs> when, when you say that, like, yeah, yeah, this is God telling me to do this. He's like, like, what? Like, how do you, even, like, how do you know that? <laughs> uh-huh. So we're used to using the language of psychology and saying like, oh, I felt this or my experience is this. And, and I think, I'm, I'm not saying that one is bad or the other is, or is good, uh-huh. but I think in terms of how we construct our motivations, I think there's a huge difference in terms mm. of like, what, what's the landscape of our thoughts? What's the landscape of our actions? And in what context do our thoughts and actions have meaning, right? Using the language of psychology, it's about me fundamentally, right? I'm the context, but using the language of, of religion, I relate to the divine. And so I develop a language around that. I, now, of course, in either case, it can be abused, right? Mm. And it can be made to be sheer superstition for sure. Um, but I just find it an interesting point of, um, I always kind of, when I talk to religious people, and I, I'm not saying I'm, I mean, I'm putting myself as an outsider, right? <laughs> Which is a strange thing to do. <laughs> but when I always, I kind of always, I look at that with some degree of um, not envy, but I'm always like, isn't that interesting? Like you speak like that because you, you were socialized in that way that it's just, it's part of your everyday space you know, thinking that God is with you at all times and mm-hmm. you incorporate that in your language. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I kind of admire it even. Yeah. Anyway. That's interesting. You know, that, that helps me think about something. I don't know whether this episode will air before or after the episode on prayer, but I, I share in that episode, the idea that even though I grew up on a formal level, understanding that prayer was important, mm-hmm. there was always sort of a feeling of, I didn't have, I don't even know if it's fair to say I didn't have an, an emotional connection to it because when I was saying the prayers, I think they were quite meaningful, but I was not drawn to pray mm-hmm. frequently. It, it, some, at some points in my life as a young person, it would be a practice in, in the sense mm-hmm. of a habit, but I didn't mm-hmm. have, I think what you're describing, the idea of a reliant consciousness of God's presence at all times. And and it makes sense that that would be something that is lo- impacted a lot by just the language around. And yeah, I wasn't like watching our, TV where that was a concept, you know? It's like, like if you look at our- talking about it. <laughs> absolutely. It's not in our social environment. It wasn't yeah. in mine anyway. I was yeah. socialized in a highly irreligious context. Mm-hmm. And so, but it's, it's interesting you, if you think of like our grandparents and the way that mm-hmm. they would talk. Like mm-hmm. I remember I, I had a grandparent who would literally, when something would go wrong, she would just talk to, like, she would do like, why are you doing this, God? Like, <laughs> she would just literally talk to God and, and she uh-huh. meant it. Like she was actually, you know, she was squaring it with God in her day-to-day life because she just had that sense of presence. And so, yeah, anyway. That's very interesting. Um, it's, it's sort of uh, speaking of sort of upbringing or our formative experiences, there's something you said that really intrigued me. You talked about how when you were younger, even though you didn't have a firm idea of the the why for morality, mm-hmm. you had what you called, and I'm going to try to quote it because it was interesting. You said, you, you, you always yearned for a great moral good. Mm-hmm. Could you describe that a little bit more? What did, what did that feel like or, or what were the thoughts associated with that? Um, you know, it's, there's a, I named my son after a, a novel from George Eliot, after George Eliot. And she describes this feeling as well, that you yearn for some context in which your deeds have far resonance, Hmm. right? You yearn for some context in which uh, you can align, like where where your deeds matter, right? So some situation in which you can have an impact on things, right? And, and so I wanted, I remember when I was in my late teens, 
I had this feeling of wanting so much to um, to do something good, right? And to to be, you know, it was just this impulse that I had that I wanted to create something good in the world, uh-huh. and uh, and whether that was, you know, um, <laughs> you know, like saving a puppy or whether it was like changing the world, the course of world events or whatever it was. I just, I had this strong desire for um, moral good and to create something beautiful. Mm. But I think there was, that time was a period of heightened need, right? And heightened yearning. So it was a strange time in my life, honestly, because on the one hand, I, I, I had such an impulse for, for wanting to do good, for wanting the world to be good. It wasn't about me, mm-hmm. it was about wanting something good to come out of life. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, really uh, confused about what good was in general. Like I... I and what um, and just feeling like I couldn't get it, feeling like no matter what I did, um, it wasn't within reach. So could I try to I want to run something by you, see if if this does or doesn't kind of resonate is it could what you're describing be considered part of the sort of innate human longing for beauty or attraction to beauty when you talk about creating good Mm -hmm. because i i think you know in thinking about this question of what does spirituality add to morality maybe the language of beauty is is part of what it it adds that a good action when you move beyond just a consequentialist view, a good action isn't simply something that creates a good effect. It is something that brings you into harmony with, mm-hmm. I guess you could call it the the fundamental moral law that 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 comes from God and in a religious version of, of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's inherently beautiful because it is a thing, like it, it is a creation of harmony. Yeah. I... Um, one of my favorite books uh, is uh, Portals to Freedom. It's by mm-hmm. Howard Colby Ives, who was a Unitarian minister who met Abdu'l-Bahá in the early 20th century and was profoundly impacted by the time that he spent with Abdu'l-Bahá and wrote this book to try to convey something of what it was like to be in Abdu'l-Bahá's presence. So the mm-hmm. book's interesting. It moves between descriptions of events and then Internal periodically, descriptions. Yeah, just, just these page-long attempts to describe an experience in mm-hmm. a timeless way. And it's, it's quite interesting, but there's a passage where he says in speaking of Abdu'l-Bahá, he says, he never told me what I should do beyond suggesting that what I was doing was right, nor did he ever tell me what I should believe. He made truth and love so beautiful and royal that the heart perforce did reverence. Mm-hmm. He showed me by his voice, manner, bearing, smile, how I should be knowing that out of the pure soil of being, the good fruit of deeds and words would surely spring. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like what, what you're describing in your youth, even before having a religious context for thinking about morality, mm-hmm. was almost an innate desire for that same thing that a spiritually informed morality provides, saying, you have done good because you have done something in harmony with the spiritual law, the spiritual underpinnings of reality. And I guess religion provides that in a formal sense, but it's very interesting. Do you think that's something that everyone on some level aspires to, whether they have? I think it's something that, uh, I think that it's something that everybody potentially has. Uh, But I think providing a language for it so that people have the spiritual encounter and know what it means. Right. Hmm. So I was having a spiritual encounter, but I did not know what it meant. 
right? So I felt it, right? And for me, it was the truest thing that I, I ever felt, right? Um, but I didn't know what it meant. And I didn't know what, how to cultivate it. I didn't know how to act upon it in such a way that I could uh, use that impulse. So for me, that impulse was characterized by, um, so I, I think what I was getting at in the, in, the in the podcast was I was saying like, that my heart felt it, but my mind didn't believe it, right? Mm. So I, so I, I, felt, I felt the need to sacrifice myself for kindness. I felt mm. the need to do something for the good of the world. Like it was such a strong feeling, mm. but my mind told me, what is that? That's just a strong feeling. So with that psychological framework, I'm just like, okay, yeah. well, it's a feeling. And guess what? You're just a piece of meat. So some byproduct of something. And so... But I think what, what the religious framework does is that it creates an inner universe, so to speak, and connects that your heart, your heart and soul with an ocean of the divine mm. and says that those impulses, they come from that ocean. That ocean is the essence of reality and you are connected to it. And those mm. are the manifestations, the rumblings wow. of that ocean. And so it gives you a framework to be able to describe it to be able to, you know, channel it, to be able to cultivate it, to be able to, and yeah, I think that's kind of. So interesting. It's, it's, it sounds when you describe the idea of sort of the soul yearning for something in the mind, having no context for it and even kind of denigrating it, it sounds, uh, that sounds mm -hmm. painful. Like it sounds was, like it was a painful yeah. period. Oh, for me, it was so painful. Oh, yeah. Michael, I can't tell you. I always say this, like my late teens and early 20s, I always mm -hmm. make this joke, like, so now I'm 35, that now, thankfully, my 30s were not as hard as my 20s, right? <laughs> but at the, by, when I turned 30, I was just like, I remember thinking to myself, is this what life is? Like, is every decade as hard as this decade was? Because mm -hmm. I was like, if every decade is going to be as hard as that, I can't make it to like a mm. hundred. I, right. I just can't, I can't do it. Like <laughs> and who would want to really? <laughs> yes. Who would want to, I can't, I can't handle it. So I think, you know, I mean, I think also you sometimes need to make trade-offs between the mm. internal and the external. And so I think that sense of the internal has to be cultivated through an awareness of the divine and through prayer. But I think as you turn your eyes towards the external things, it can, it can, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It can blunt your spiritual susceptibilities, right? Hmm. So, so I think, I think that's really kind of what I'm getting at when I talk about this relationship between spiritual, spirituality and morality, like all people have that impulse, all yeah. people yearn to do good. Yeah. But I, the real question is, do all people have the framework in which you cultivate and respect that impulse and you nurture it for what it can potentially become right and i think this for me like the secular approach or the materialist approach to morality it simply just it just doesn't do that it just talks about those inner impulses in terms of you know they're just phenomenal they're just byproducts they're just like epiphenomenal kind of things that don't have any fundamental reality they come from nowhere they go nowhere you should trust whatever else you have and so i mean maybe it's an oversimplification because there's this whole romantic kind of uh, like this approach you can have so to speak a romantic spirituality which is non-religious uh, and that's a that's a complicated other topic, mm. but yeah, it's. I, I wouldn't want to sort of impose this description on a, a general experience of moral urges outside a religious framework. But in your case, I think it, what you described it sounds like you could fairly call it uh, oppression, in the sense that Baha'u'llah mm -hmm. uses the term in the Book of Certitude, where he says, mm -hmm. "What greater oppression is there than that a soul?" And I'll get the wording, the exact wording wrong, but. What greater oppression is there than that a soul longing to know the truth should not know where to look for it? Yeah. 
And it's this language issue again, that you, you were immersed in a, a milieu in which you did not have, you didn't know where to begin to look because the very language that formed the way you thought about it didn't permit of the possibility of the spirit. For me, that was honestly the defining, um, that was the defining experience of my life. That feeling of, of youth and, and kind of early in my early 20s, seeking, yearning, wanting something more, and, but never quite able to come to that point where I could understand what that was. Um, well, I have, uh, I mean, there's a whole bunch more things I want to ask, but I know we're running up against the clock a bit. So maybe we can leave it there for now. And I'm sure the discussion um, will continue in future episodes. And as always, we're going to encourage our listeners to, uh, you know, send along any, uh, any thoughts or questions or comments. Uh, we're going to, in the show notes, you'll find our uh, contact information available. So please do go ahead and do that. We'd like to continue the conversation. Thank you so much, Michael. See you next episode. Sounds good. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon. Bye.